Welcome back to the Dental Bright Bites podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kidd, and today we have Perrin Desports back with us from Tusk Partners. Today we're going to be discussing the top three things to know before acquiring another dental practice. Now, if you're just joining us, head on back to our last episode, episode seven, for the first of three episodes that we're doing with Perrin. Now, without further ado, let's get into this great episode. All right, guys, I'm back with Perrin Desports of Tusk Partners, and we are on our second of our series talking about the top three things to know when acquiring practices. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, it's good to be back with you. Hopefully uh, we didn't bore everybody to tears on the prior one, right? (laughs) If they're still listening, I think we got them. I was about to say. Okay, so I know that this is an awesome topic to discuss because uh, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of dentists acquire practices when they plan to grow to multi-locations. I know some like to do startups, but kind of the fastest way uh, to grow can be acquiring practices. So let's get into that and talk about what your things, what your tips are um, that they should be looking at when they're looking into a new practice. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think there are three things from uh, from our purview that we see um, a lot of people either not paying attention to or not paying enough attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, they simply think that you know a growth strategy is going to be based on acquisitions because it's the fastest way to grow, and some of them feel like there's l- less downside risk because they're buying a business that's already operating. It's got patience, it's got profits, it's got all that other kind of stuff. Um, so there's, there's less downside risk than starting up on their own, but there, there are a couple of pitfalls that I think, um, uh, all too often they're, they're not mindful of. And the first is, is really, uh, buying practices, uh, when a traditional dental practice broker has them listed as a percentage of revenue, mm. um, Percentage of revenue is obviously very easy to calculate. You know, if it's a million dollar revenue practice and it's selling for $800,000, that's an 80% of revenue multiple. Okay, fine. That tells me the the valuation as a percentage of revenue, but it doesn't tell me anything about the cash flows of the business. And it doesn't uh, really tell me anything about the underlying aspects um, of, of how the business is constituted. The other thing to keep in mind is that most of most of dentists nowadays that are interested in acquiring multiple practices are, are acquiring them to build a group and ultimately exit, meaning sell their group. If mm-hmm. they are going to build a group practice and their intention is to sell it, that group practice will be valued as a multiple of EBITDA. If that's the way the business is going to be valued on exit, shouldn't you use the same discipline in terms of acquiring the practices that you're going to acquire over that period of time to build up the group itself? I mean, that's the way the game is played. You ought to play it that way from the beginning. So Uh, EBITDA is earnings before (laughs) earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. EBITDA is is a an acronym that everybody has read heard or or something these days but think of it this way it is a way for a a, an acquirer to understand the normalized cash flow out of the business Mm -hmm. if you and i look at a business in terms of percentage of revenue again that's great that's one metric 
if we look at a profit and loss statement or an income statement, it tells us revenues, it tells us expenses, it tells us some taxes and other jazz, and then there's a net income line. But the government allows um, businesses to take something called non-cash deductions to lower their taxable income. Those non-cash deductions, you don't actually have to write a check for, um, but it lowers your taxable income. From your perspective, Sarah, think Section 179. If I go out and buy a cone beam x-ray and it's $150,000, I may be able to expense all of it today, right here, right now, today, mm -hmm. but I'd probably pay for it over five years uh, over the term of a loan from a bank or from Patterson for that matter. But I was able to uh, lower my taxable income by $150,000 by accelerated depreciation. Amortization is goodwill, the same thing as depreciation is, it's an intangible asset. And then interest and taxes are exactly what they say, cost of fi financing operations, and then Uncle Sam being your business partner, what we owe him every year. Mm, especially if you're in California, that's a big There's one. a lot of it, that's right. <laughs> um, as far as EBITDA goes, if you're looking at a practice, how do you get that determined? Yeah, so when you get the uh, information um, from the, the broker, I would assume, or, or maybe the, the seller himself or herself, uh, you want to take a look at tax returns uh, and income statements, obviously, um, because amortization um, uh, and depreciation are on the tax return and then interest and taxes are usually on the, on the P&L. And basically the way to calculate it is take the earnings of the business and then add those four things, interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, add those back to the, the income of the business to get an EBITDA calculation. If you really wanna get um, a potentially even more accurate representation of the, the normalized cash flows of the business, you can also look at some of the uh, things the owner of the business decided to spend money on that might not be necessary to running the business. Yeah. For example, um, if, uh, uh, if the owner of the business uh, is employing their, their two kids to manage payroll, you might, after you bought the business, you might not employ those two kids to manage payroll. If they're running the lawn care company uh, for their house through the business, that might not be a necessary expense to running the business. And then there are other things that might be one-time expenses. The owner decided to repaint all the walls in the business. Well, that cost them several thousand dollars to do it, but since they did it this year, it's probably not an expense that you would incur every year ongoing thereafter. So you can get a, a much more accurate representation of the normalized cash flow of the business through an EBITDA calculation. And at the end of the day, if you're gonna acquire the business, cash is really what you're interested in. Wouldn't you need more of like a full investigation than just kind of putting those numbers together though? Because like you said, there's a lot of things that um, the dentist can choose to put on there, but there's also a lot of things that maybe staff could be or could not be doing that could affect these numbers um, and skew it as well, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, there. I, I think, excellent point. I mean, so small businesses are a pretty dynamic animal, right? I mean, yeah. uh, there's a lot that goes on in there. And um, some I just don't know if I would trust myself <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> if I was looking into a practice to do this math and to not miss stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think um, 
so the way I might answer that is, uh, depending on how deep you want to look and and you know how deep you want to go, are you are you spending too much time chasing too many pennies at that point? Okay. Um, the other thing is that, you know, if you can get the big buckets right um, and understand the valuation context after getting the big buckets right, if you make the decision to buy the business, any other incremental pickups that you may have through either expense containment. Um, or choosing not to fund things that were going on before or maximizing revenue um, are, are just going to be accretive to the business that you've built, meaning they're going to be to your benefit post-acquisition. Um, uh, okay. post now, most dentists that I've ever talked to think that their practice is worth 80% of production. When EBITDA is taken into account, how accurate do you think that is? Well, <laughs> so... The whole 70 to 80% of revenue, um, uh, you know, metric, if you will, is, let's face it, it's an easy number to calculate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I can do that without even a napkin. Um, and it's usually a window in which um, a bank will, uh, will typically make a, a lending decision, meaning they'll agree with it from a valuation context for somebody going to get bank funds to borrow it. So if a broker positions a, a dental practice as an 80% of revenue valuation, chances are probably good they're not gonna run into a problem with a bank making a lending decision to get the deal done. So that's, uh, that's two sides of the same coin, if you will. That being said, when you look at businesses as um, um, a multiple of EBITDA or valued based off of EBITDA, um, you really want to pay attention to um, uh, what we call the EBITDA multiple. And multiples of EBITDA are used to, to substantiate um, the valuation of a, business, of, a, of, of a solo practice and a group practice. If you're going to pay more than about five times EBITDA, you're really getting in, for a solo practice, you're really getting into some pretty rare air in terms of evaluation multiple. So okay. this goes back to what is the true, um, what is the EBITDA calculation for the business? An 80, a, a practice that generates a million dollars in revenue and, and sells for 80% of revenue or $800,000 could be generating a phenomenal EBITDA margin. And you and I might love to buy that business for $800,000 because it might be a three and a half to four times multiple. I'll take that every day of the week, most buyers would say. On the other hand, it could be a high fixed cost area. It could be um, uh, a high Medicaid concentration or a, you know, um, a lot of revenue with, with low margin to it. And if the EBITDA is really low out of that million dollar revenue practice and we pay 80% of revenue or 800 grand on it, we could end up paying a, a seven to eight times multiple and never be able to get our money out of it on the sale of it. Hmm. So it's really important to know uh, the EBITDA multiple that you're buying the business at if the intent is to one day sell the group for a multiple of EBITDA. Great. Now tell me, when a doctor is looking into a practice, how do they know which ones to look at, which ones to get? Yeah, so I think, you know, these next two pieces kind of kind of play off of the first, and I'll try okay. to avoid the EBITDA um, uh, acronym in, in the interest of not wearing everybody out with it. Um, so, you know, we see 
dentists that want to grow through acquisition, um, talking about, um, you know, every practice that comes on the market. And, you know, our, our cautionary tale is, look, don't fall in love. You know, more, <laughs> more businesses will, will come available, be patient, uh, and, and stick, to your, uh, stick to your, you know, secret sauce. Know what you do well. Target acquisition profile is something that um, we have, we built one at Tusk. I mean, it's not rocket science. The idea is that you look at yourself and you say, you know, who am I and what am I good at? What are the characteristics of my business? Uh, what am I looking for, ideally, in another business? And can I itemize those? Um, the example I, I like to use, though it's a, um, you know, it obviously didn't turn out very well, is that I'm a, uh, I know of a, a very high-end fee-for-service practice uh, in the greater Charlotte area um, uh, that did a lot of expanded clinical functions, um, very successful practice, reached and bought a second location uh, that was about 40% Medicaid concentration. Oof. And a couple of years later, they struggled to unload that business. And I think they learned a healthy lesson. It didn't cost them the business, thank God. I mean, the primary business they had. But you, you got to think through the systems and processes and people and philosophies and everything that's made you successful. And the business you're about to acquire, will that fit? Will it translate? And if, if you think that it will just based on sheer might and because you're a great dentist, I'm here to tell you that it won't. You need to be real clear about who you are, what you do, and what you're good at, and what you're not good at. And yeah. don't take a swing at a pitch that's outside of your strike zone. Be disciplined. So go into an acquisition with an itemized list of what you're looking for, uh, and also what are deal breakers. Um, you know, if you talk to any established group practice or DSO, and you ask them, hey, what are you looking for in terms of uh, a, a practice to acquire, they're going to rattle it off real, real quick. It's a million dollars or more in revenue. It's six or more operatories. It's less than 10% Medicaid exposure. It's seller willing to stay on with some deferred compensation, you know, et cetera. Et cetera. They've got probably eight to 10 core criteria uh, mm -hmm. that if the, if the practice in question doesn't meet um, a certain number of those, they'll take a pass. And any director, director of business development for an established DSO will tell you, they probably only um, successfully acquire and integrate about 10 to 20% of the deals they actually get a look at, which is another mm -hmm. way of saying they're passing on nine out of 10 of them. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've, I've seen this happen, even just with solo locations where a new doctor comes in and purchases it and, you know, maybe the old doctor loved to do endo and a huge percentage of that income was from endo and then the new doctor doesn't do endo. Yeah. So, yeah. um, what, what happens there? Right. <laughs> so, so yeah. the large percentage, endo. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you wonder why the revenue goes from a million to 800 grand literally overnight. Well, you can't do the work, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next thing we want to talk about is identifying and tracking the practice. Yeah. So the same thing can be said if we play off this target acquisition profile um, context and, and itemizing, you know, what, uh, what we're truly looking for in a business to acquire. Um, you want to, you're going to pay 
top dollar. You're going to pay some amount to acquire a business. Um, you are not going to acquire that business with the intent of just, you know, sitting on it and holding on to it. The idea is to acquire it because there's upside potential. So what is that upside potential? It really comes in the, in the form of essentially two things, uh, cost containment or expense reduction, as well as revenue generation. Mm -hmm. So let's take your endo example and, and kind of flip it around. Let's say um, that you are a uh, successful small group um, general dentistry practice that has the ability to, to do some expanded endo functions. And you were looking at acquiring um, a general dentistry practice that is a, a, a stable practice, it's got good revenues, it's nicely profitable, and, and everything like that, and they are referring out 100% of their endo cases. Well, if I'm, look, if I'm the acquiring doctor and I look at buying that practice and I say, you know what, I'm gonna pay a high dollar to acquire this practice because it's a, there are a lot of people interested in it. It's in a great location of town. The seller's willing to stay on board. I'm gonna to have to pay to get this thing. If I have to pay top dollar, how am I gonna get some return out of it? Well, they referred out 100 grand worth of endo last year. And I think I can keep 80% of that. So itemizing upside potential and quantifying it, saying the, the area of, uh, of most accessible low-hanging fruit is the amount of endo work that they referred out last year. And by our you know, quantitative computations here, it's probably about 100 grand that they referred out. And I think I can keep 80% of it in-house. So you put that number down and you put the opportunity down as um, upside potential, expanded clinical functions, essentially. And then you say, well, they were working with um, some other dental dealer and, and we work with Patterson and Sarah's great and our cost of supplies is five to six percent or something like that. And, and they, were, they were buying supplies from everybody under the sun and, and were paying eight to 10 percent for supplies. Well, Sarah, being our rep, is going to take great care of us after we acquire that next practice. And we're going to be able to drive our supply costs down from eight percent to 5% and pick up three points uh, on the expense line there uh, and on and on and on. The key is looking for these opportunities and, and itemizing and quantifying them before you make the acquisition and then tracking them for the first year after acquisition. In other words, did your projections actually play out the way you intended or did something go wrong? If something went wrong, is that something you need to fix? You just fail to execute? Or is it more of a systemic problem? But that will, if you can start to quantify that and get comfortable with the upside potential that you're able to generate in businesses that you acquire, it will give you more confidence to do acquisitions. And in the event that you actually have to pay top dollar for an acquisition, you can actually get comfortable with that based on the upside of the business you're about to acquire. Hmm. That's interesting. So my three takeaways from our three top tips in layman's terms are EBITDA. So figure out what the practice is actually worth. Don't just take the production, dig a little bit more. Uh, two, do some yoga, find out who you are <laughs> and what you're looking for in life. Uh, you know, meditate a little bit about it, figure out what you want. Don't just buy a practice because it looks good. And three, 
learn your dang software. So that way you can track <laughs> what things you're doing and how they're working. I cannot tell you how many doctors I talk to who do not take a look at anything in their software. They don't want to know it. Um, number one, they're probably being embezzled from, which is another podcast episode because they're not looking at anything. But uh, if you're not looking at your software and you're not tracking things, it's the definition of insanity. How can yeah. you not pay attention to what all of your effort when you show up to work every day, is it working or is it not? Um, and obviously that's, that's a huge part of growing to a multi-location DSO practice. Yeah, hundred percent, and it's um it's an aspect of uh, of control of the business at some level. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's your name on the door and it's your name on the bank document. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't leave much less m much else to chance if I were in those shoes. Absolutely, which brings us to our final episode: the top three metrics to measure when building a successful group practice. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Dental Bright Bites. Before you go, if you could please share us with one of your dental friends, I would greatly appreciate it. And make sure you stay tuned for next week's episode for the third of this series and final part to the interview with Perrin Desports.